This is Mormon Awakenings. My name's Jack Nanique. I hope you find something interesting here today. Welcome back. I want to start by telling a story about a Scottish physicist. So hold on. Don't turn the podcast off yet. It's going to be interesting. And there is going to be a point. But there was a Scottish physicist and mathematician named William Thompson, also known as Sir William or Lord Kelvin. And he lived during the 19th century and died at the very beginning of the 20th century. And Sir William did a a couple of amazing things. He was credited with creating the Kelvin scale, which is the absolute scale of temperature. The second law of thermodynamics was attributed to Sir William, Lord Kelvin. He also did all the research that led to the first transatlantic cable between the U.S. and England. And then he went out on the ship and actually helped lay that cable. And his, his real gift was that he could find mathematical patterns as he applied the various branches of science, physics, thermodynamics, hydraulics. And he would use these mathematical patterns to build models and then eventually to make inventions that were, that had great use in the real world. And for all of these accomplishments, he was knighted. You know, in the United Kingdom, when you do something great, you become a knight, you become Sir so-and-so, well, he became Sir William Thompson, Lord Kelvin of the Larges. During all this time, he was a professor at the University of Cambridge. He was often quoted in newspapers. He had a massive personality. I mean, he was, I mean, it was almost as if he was the Elon Musk or the Steve Jobs of the second half of the 19th century. Some people have even gone so far as to say that Sir William was as important to physics as Isaac Newton was. You know, the guy who got hit in the head with the apple the founder of classical physics, that guy. Well, people have equated Sir William's contributions with those of Isaac Newton's, so that's high praise indeed. Well, near the end of Sir William's life, at the turn of the century, the beginning of the 20th century, there began to be some rumblings about new branches of discovery in science, in physics, in aeronautics. People like Albert Einstein, Max Planck, the Wright brothers, you may have heard of some of these people, began to probe deeper and beyond the knowledge at the time. Einstein came up with the theory of relativity. The foundations for quantum mechanics began to be laid during this time. The Wright brothers and others were trying to invent airplanes, which at the time were called flying machines. And it was really during this period that the foundations, the theoretical foundations for our modern life as it exists today, were being formulated. Well, when Sir William Thompson was asked about people like Albert Einstein and Max Planck and other thinkers, this is what he said. There is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. So so let me just frame this for you. One of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, scientific thinker of his day. Inventor, professor, entrepreneur. Knighted Lord said with great certitude in the year 1900 that there's nothing else to be discovered in the field of physics. Nothing. And he didn't just stop there with these great predictions of the future, by the way. Here's what Sir William had to say about the Wright brothers' attempt to build an airplane. Heavier than air flying machines are impossible. I have not the smallest molecule of faith in aerial navigation other than ballooning. 
Now, as you listen to these quotes now, they're, they're laughable. Quantum mechanics, for example, a branch of physics developed sometime after Sir William's pronouncements, is the theoretical basis for things like the LED, the microprocessor, the semiconductor, cellular communications, basically everything that the digital information communications revolution is built on. You know, and not only did we invent the airplane, we've been to the moon and we did it with more than a balloon. So how could this guy, Sir William, who was an innovator, a pioneer himself, had every credential known to man, every degree, had all the status, wealth, a knighthood. How could someone like that be A, so wrong and B, so full of certitude in his wrongness? That in and of itself is kind of mind-boggling, if you ask me. But even more mind-boggling is how common this phenomenon is in life. The older, experienced, wise, successful guard declaring with certitude, but also completely inaccurately, that attempts by the younger generation to innovate and to build on the past are doomed to failure, are a waste of time, impossible. We see this generation after generation after generation. It's as old as time immemorial. Now, if you're one of the young upstarts, and I, I want to say right now, it's really not a matter of age. It's more, it's more a matter of point of view, not age. But, you know, so let's say if you're one of the young heterodox or one of the young innovators, and let's throw out young, one of the heterodox or one of the innovators, and there's some person with all the credentials all the status, the titles, the money, the power, the admiration from the group. And let's not forget the admiration from the group that the old guard receives. It's usually well-deserved. You know, think of Sir William, Lord Kelvin. I mean, this guy was, as I said, like, like the Elon Musk or the Steve Jobs of his time. So it's not like the respect he garnered was unwarranted. Members of the old guard are usually more like the Sir Williams of the world. They're established, successful, smart, capable. So their positions are deserved. Nonetheless, if you're a young orthodox, a young upstart, and someone from this community stands up in front of everybody, publicly declares what you're trying to do, what you're thinking, what you're trying to promote is a complete waste of time, is wrong or ill-conceived, is stupid, is ignorant, is unrighteous, Again, use whatever negative adjective you want. Well, how's that going to make you feel? It's going to make you feel bad, A, and B, it's going to make you wonder, what's wrong with me? What, what am I missing? What am I not getting? It's going to sow some doubt in you that maybe your ideas or your plans are maybe not worth as much as you think they are, which is counterintuitive in a sense, because most of the people in the old guard, when they were young, they were just like the young innovators. Weren't they? Sir William, Lord Kelvin surely was. He was a young innovator, a pioneer. Near the end of, a, end of his life, he was saying things like, you know, flying machines are impossible. The, the best we can hope for are balloons. Nonetheless, at that point in his life, he had all the status. He had all the power, all the money. Most people defer to someone like that. So how do the new upstarts get any traction? How did the Einsteins and the Max Planck's and the Wright brothers of the world convince themselves and those around them that the Sir Williams of their time are wrong and that they know more than the old guard? Why do they not in that 
situation say, oh, yeah, you know, this guy, Sir William Thompson, he, yeah, he's got a point. I must be deluded. Well, for my money, it comes down to two things, timing and mastery. Let's take the Wright brothers as an example. I'm sure there was a time in their life when if some prominent scientist stood up and said, flying machines are impossible, our best hope are, are balloons, they would have nodded their head in agreement. Yes, you're probably, yeah, that guy's probably right. And that time was when they were immature, hadn't read all the books, hadn't done all of their own mechanical experiments, had no knowledge of their own. You know, and this is obvious, right? I mean, they're not going to have a strong opinion about anything until they've acquired their own knowledge and they don't have any. So the timing's wrong. It's not the time for them to stand up and challenge this scientist. I mean, if they were to stand up and say, oh, yes, there is. I can see it in my mind. I mean, it would be ridiculous. They probably would have, as younger people, said, yeah, that guy's probably right. He's smarter than I am. But over time, they acquired their own understanding of the principles of physics, aerodynamics, mastered all there was out there to be mastered, learned what there was to learn, lived what there was to live, well, at that point, if some prominent scientist comes along and says, You'll, you've no chance with that dumb flying machine, stick to ballooning. At the point in their life where the timing's right and they've mastered what they need to master, these sort of proclamations probably don't affect them at all, other than to irritate them. I'm sure it was irritating. But it's not going to be enough at that stage where the timing's right and they've mastered all that they need to master for them to, to abandon their endeavor, to quit. Now, in scientific fields, these ideas of mastery and timing are more easily understood and demonstrated. But they apply equally to all fields of human endeavor. Because in every field of human endeavor, there's an old guard who can declare with certainty how things are, how they ever will be. Then there's another group that harbors heterodox ideas, the innovators. And this second group is never going to get traction until the timing's right and until they master all that needs to be mastered. Because until that time, any negative proclamations, any poo-pooing by the old guard is only going to see doubt in the minds of the young upstart that what they're thinking about, what they're conceiving is a waste of time, is dumb. Turn back. If the timing isn't right for the innovators and if the innovators haven't mastered all that they need to master, all the old guard has to do is point to their own credentials, their own knowledge, their own success, their own status. And they can say with credibility, I know more than you. And all the young innovators can do is agree, which rattles them, causes doubt, stops them in their tracks. They may at the same time anger them, but they get no traction, is my point. It's only when the young upstarts have paid the price, acquired their own knowledge, become their own masters, that they have the confidence to move forward. Now, there are a lot of people inside every community, but particularly our community, who are upset with the status quo or have issues with certain things going on, who want to either A, drop a nuclear bomb on the whole thing and obliterate it, or B, want to just scream and yell to be accepted as they are. In other words, they want the old guard to just shut up, cut with the certitude, stop with their doctrinaire proclamations, and quit sowing so much doubt in their heterodox minds. So they either want to destroy everything that's ever been built or they want the old guard to comfort them. Both approaches, in my view, are, are, are basically anti-growth, anti-progress for, for the institution and the individual. You know, obviously, the nuclear bomb approach is anti-growth. It just destroys everything, even what's good. 
But moaning or complaining that the old guard doesn't accept you and your heterodox ideas, that, that's not, not any better. I mean, that's like the Wright brothers begging Sir, Sir William Thompson to reevaluate his views about flying machines before they've ever studied anything about physics or, or mastered any of the principles of science. You know, the institution isn't going to change or grow this way, but neither is the individual. And at the end of the day, as we've discussed in this podcast, our institution and our community is pointing to something bigger than itself for all of us. So if you think that complaining and moaning and demanding change from the old guard is the way to growth, I'm sad to tell you that's a delusion. And it also means you haven't done your homework in some area of your life. And there's an easy litmus test to tell where you are along this path. If the old guard can sow seeds of doubt in your heterodox mind by merely pointing to their own credentials, their own knowledge, their own status, there's something more you need to master. Now, now mastery is a tricky word. I want to talk a little bit about this word mastery. In the scientific context, it's easy to, easy to understand. You've got to master principles of physics, mathematics, all the foundational knowledge that is out there. You know, it's a discrete set of stuff that you've got to learn, internalize, and then you can extrapolate from that. But what does mastery mean in a religious setting? I think it means this as well. I think it means you've got to learn what there is to learn you got to know the doctrines, the concepts, the scriptures, the principles. There's another meaning of mastery in religious context, though, too, which is mastery of oneself. You have to become in control of yourself to a certain extent. You have to get to the point where your spirit is in charge, where your consciousness or your enlightenment is stronger than your, than your baser instincts, where you're spiritually aware, spiritually tuned so that you're in connection with the forces from beyond this earth. When you get to that point, you start noticing your own frequencies and you start noticing truer principles, deeper principles, deeper communications. And when you get to that point, then you don't care what the old guard's saying. That's why I say, if you're someone who's merely complaining about the old guard, you've got some personal work to do. I want to give an example of what I mean. I don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve in a literal Garden of Eden. I don't think there was ever such a place. I don't think Adam on Diamond is that place. And I've held this view secretly for a long, long, long time, even when I was a teenager. To me, it always sounded like Santa Claus. Both Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, and the idea that, that we have in our church that it's Adam on Diamond in Missouri. It all happened in Missouri. And talking snakes and all this sort of, I mean, it was, it just was, it was like a fantasy novel. And it would bug me to hear people talking about Adam and Eve so literally in church or at general conference. In fact, even as recently as a couple of years ago, I think Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk about a literal Adam and Eve and how important it is to believe in this literal fall. And if you don't believe in that, then you, you can't really appreciate the atonement. You know, these sort of talks have always bugged me. That particular talk did bug me. And my thinking for a long time was we need to just get rid of this dumb myth. It's not true. You know, neither is Noah, neither is Jonah, neither is the Tower of Babel. We need to just clean out all this garbage. Why, why are we talking about these events that clearly did not happen? And all the mental gymnastics we would play to try to reconcile evolution with 
Adam and Eve and saying, well, you know, the monkeys evolved to people. And then suddenly one of them was Adam. You know, all this sort of, it just bugged me. I just wanted to chuck the whole thing. It was dumb. But you can't say that in, you know, a church. You can't go around talking about how none of these things happen. That's not an approach that endears you to your local members. It certainly doesn't comport with what we're taught at general conference. So, so I felt this dilemma, you know, I, I harbored these unorthodox views, yet I kept them inside. I didn't really express them, but it bugged me when I would hear people talk about them in such literal, literal terms. And then when I would hear talks from general authorities, it would rattle me and think, oh, I got to repent. Maybe I need to change my views on this. Oh, and it was just, you know, it was just this cycle of doubt and unorthodox views and, ugh, and just feeling bad. And we have these kind of feelings from time to time in the church about things more, way more serious than how literal the story of the Garden of Eden is. And if we don't complain vocally, we complain inside or we complain on Facebook. But whether this complaining goes on inside our heads or we're doing it vocally, it's the same. It's, it's griping, it's complaining, it's sort of a demand that the, that the institution, the old guard, the doctor needs to change, not us. And, and when you're at this juncture about any particular thing or a bunch of particular things, it's easy to, to just think the nuclear option is the solution. Oh, this is crap. I'm leaving. Or they, at a minimum, ought to, ought to abolish this particular doctrine. If they don't, they're morons. You know, it's tempting at that juncture to stop seeking your own spiritual progress, to stop studying, to stop seeking spiritual growth, spiritual communication, almost in protest to bail on things that you know are good or true or constructive in your life. It's tempting to ease up on how you participate, to attend less, to be passive, to become negative. But if you can resist that, if you can keep trying, if you can keep searching, if you keep looking for truth wherever it is, inside or outside, you get to the point where you've mastered enough to be able to take the next step. And for me, in regards to the Garden of Eden... The next step was understanding that, A, the story was totally inspired, taught profound and deep truths, yet was completely metaphorical and not based in history at all. And this was a massive revelation for me, a breakthrough. Now, I know there are a lot of people listening to this saying, this is a dumb example. We've all known this for a long time. And if you're one of those, I'm sorry. I'm just a little less developed than you. But my point is I reached a state where the timing was right and I had mastered what there was to be mastered. And any statements from people at church, general conference, the prophet himself about literalism in general or the garden of Eden being a literal place, Adam and Eve, two real people that lived at a certain time just didn't, didn't even affect me. I just didn't care because through my study and my mastery, I had found a newer meaning and that meaning was on a much higher plane was more complex and profound than my previous understanding. And that was so enriching to me, I just didn't care what anyone else was saying about it. I had come to my own conclusion. I had my own data. I'd done my own study thinking. It was my knowledge and my experience at that point. You know, the effort that I spent struggling with this foundational story paid off in other areas as well. I started to see metaphors and figurative symbols everywhere. Scripture study and gospel study became much more meaningful. You know, in a spiritual sense, it was like me as an individual transitioning from classical physics, which is what Sir William Thompson was concerned with, to quantum mechanics, 
which is what Max Planck and Einstein and some of the later thinkers were developing. It was all additive to what had come before, yet at the same time, more. Then there was another unexpected byproduct. I was able to treat people with different views, more literal views, more charitably. I was just able to accept them as they were and not try to change them. I suddenly knew that change happened at the individual level. And if anyone was able to change, they were going to have to change themselves. And I was responsible for changing me, and that's just how it worked. It was the change in me that brought me increased happiness, not the change that I originally wanted from the church, which was originally I wanted them to dump the whole Adam and Eve farce totally. Now, let me be clear. I think we can teach that whole story way better than we do, but my happiness is not dependent on that change anymore. My happiness and peace is a function of what's going on inside of me and the change going on inside of my own soul. Now, this change in perspective, this evolution, if you will, is discussed in depth in a book called Falling Upwards by Richard Rohr. He's a Catholic priest, a Franciscan, and he frames it as a second half of life phenomenon. He thinks the second half of life is when you apply things that you've learned in your own way, as you think. And that's when the expression of your life is personal and unique and creative and innovative. And he distinguishes this second half of life and and the innovation and the personal creativity associated with it from first half of life rebellion. And he takes great pains to point out that there is a difference between rebelling and smashing things and being creative and innovative while you build on the past. Let's think back to the Wright brothers. Let's think back to Albert Einstein. They were building on the work of people like Sir William, who was poo-pooing their efforts, yet at the same time had laid the foundations and done the intellectual work that enabled their efforts. Without Sir William, there would have never been an Albert Einstein. And I think that's why progress is so difficult in general, in society, in culture, but in particular inside our community. Because paradoxically, complaining and griping and moaning and demanding change, that the institution itself change, that other people change, that never achieves anything except to signal to the old guard that you're unprepared, unschooled, not mature. And any old guard in any field, in any culture, in any community knows this instinctively because the old guard is always smart, capable, competent, and they merely grab hold of the reins tighter in reaction to this. So if you ever wonder why the old guard is doctrinaire and seems inflexible, that's why. Because they're usually responding to people who have mastered nothing, to people who haven't mastered themselves, to people who haven't mastered any doctrines or any principles. All they're doing is complaining. And even if, even if the point of the complaining is right on one level, it achieves nothing because of this. But if you can get yourself to the point where the timing's right and you've mastered all there is to be mastered, where you're at the point where no one else can sow seeds of doubt inside you because you have your own knowledge and your own experience, then you can start contributing to the group, to the community, 
effectively. And the reason you're effective at that point is because your confidence enables you to be charitable. And when you're charitable, then you can accept people as they are. And paradoxically, they'll accept you as you are. And maybe they'll start listening to you. Now, I recognize saying things this way makes everybody mad. It makes the old guard mad, right? Because they say, we're not being recalcitrant. We're preserving the orthodoxy of the kingdom. And you can be as nice as you want, but right is right, and we're not going to change. No matter how charitable and compassionate you are. To those people, I would just point to Paul, who used to be Saul. If you remember, Saul went around killing the followers of Christ. That was Saul's job. He was so orthodox, so against change and progress, he resorted to murder. And all the whining and moaning and complaining in the world was not going to change Saul. The only thing that changed Saul was an incredible act of compassion that came in the form of a vision to Saul on the road to Damascus, where Christ appeared as a being of light to Saul. And Christ didn't come to destroy Saul or to punish him or to complain or to whine. He came to save him. Saul, a relatively unworthy person at the time, got one of the greatest visions of all time as a great act of charity. Now, I know I'm interpreting this event a little bit differently than most people would. Most people would say things like, well, Christ appeared to Saul and then Saul repented. But if you look at the context, that's really not what happened in my view. Saul was not breaking some set of commandments that he knew. He was not doing evil things in his mind. Saul was the old guard. He was the Pharisee. He had all the power. He was the educated one. Christianity at the time was not Christianity. It was the Jesus sect. It was a rogue cult. And according to the doctrines of the day, you needed to stamp those kind of things out with force. Saul was just doing his job as a good, faithful, orthodox member of the old guard. And I'm sure there's a lot of whining and complaining from the victims in the Jesus sect who are being brutalized by Saul, but that did not move him at all. It was only this act of charity by Christ himself where he said to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you being so mean? There were no threats that Christ was going to destroy Saul or beat him up or send him to hell. Just this really nice, kind question. Why, why are you doing this? And if Saul hadn't converted at that time, I think Christ would have loved him still and just accepted him as he was and tried again later. And that act of charity completely changed Saul's life. He changed his name even. He was so ashamed of what he had been. He went on to become the greatest Christian missionary of all time. He wrote more pages in the New Testament than anyone else. He articulated the gospel, period. So charity, when it's performed by someone who's mastered what needs to be mastered, and when the timing is right, has a massive effect indeed. Now, to those on the other side, those who are opposed to the to the old guard or fighting the old guard, those who are prone to complaining, they don't want to go through this this process of changing themselves and mastering themselves and waiting for the right timing, because they think they think what that means is that they have to conform the way they've been told to conform. And 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 I let me be clear, that's not what mastery and timing is all about. 
It's not mere conformity or blind obedience, but it is learning what there is to be learned both inside and outside of our community. And it is mastering and disciplining oneself where you get to the point where you have your own knowledge and your own experience, where you've changed yourself first, when you've become enlightened. And the way you know if you've done enough is when you've gotten to the point where you can accept other people as they are, no matter what their views are. When you've gotten to the point where you know you cannot change anyone else, they have to change themselves. And your own internal happiness and peace is not dependent on anyone else or any other institution changing to suit you, but it's based on the changes you've made yourself. You may still want others to change. You may still want the institution to change, but your happiness and your sense of peace is no longer dependent on that. And when that burden is lifted off your shoulder, paradoxically, you're better equipped and better able to facilitate change if someone's ready. And you understand, too, that if they're not ready, there's nothing you can do except wait and be patient. And this process isn't just the process for changing the old guard inside our community. It's the process for changing anybody in any community, in any culture, family, business, whatever it is. This is a skill for life, period. Now, for those who are interested to embark on that path, I would refer you to Alma and his sermon about experimenting on the word. Spend some time experimenting on the word yourself and get your own data and come to your own conclusions. That's the only way you're going to be able to free yourself from needing others to change before you're happy, before you're at peace, before you know what's right and wrong for yourself. At that point, you'll have enough confidence to be charitable, to be compassionate, and maybe that'll help change other people, and maybe it won't, but either way, you'll be at peace. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Until next time.